Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care, the podcast where together we explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can restore a connection with our environment. I'm your host Tiffen, I grew up in the French part of Switzerland and now live in London where I work in the environmental space, helping people and organizations connect the dots for biodiversity. Over the past few years I've come to realize and understand that the reason why we care and feel such deep hurt when we see a forest being cut down or a whale being killed is because nature is where we come from. It's our home and it's who we are, and it is so central to our balance and well-being. And yet we've become so disconnected from it. Most of us in the Western world living in concrete buildings, walking on concrete roads, living our lives away from the natural world. But I really do think we need that connection with nature now more than ever. So this podcast is all about finding ways to restore that connection while protecting and regenerating the ecosystems around us. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Ellen Miles, guerrilla gardener and author. I found out about guerrilla gardening when I first met her a few months ago. And in case you haven't heard about it yet, it means planting flowers and plants in public spaces in your neighborhood, both to support biodiversity, but also to reclaim those spaces and connect with your local community. I asked her a ton of questions about it, so if you're curious and want to learn more about guerrilla gardening, you're in the right place. She also recently wrote an entire book about it, which I'll link in the show notes in case you'd like to dig even deeper. Pun completely intended. <laughs> um, the other book she wrote is called Nature is a Human Right, another movement she started to advocate for more access to nature in our increasingly urbanized world. So we also spoke about this a little bit and how regular contact with nature is absolutely crucial for our health. I hope you're feeling comfortable and relaxed. Take a moment to feel connected and grounded. Drop your jaw. Move your shoulders down, away from your ears. Take a deep breath in. Long breath out. And let's dive in. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much for being here today. The first thing I'd like to ask you is, what's your story? Ooh, big question. (laughs) (laughs) Start. Um, so I was born and raised in Hackney in East London, um, and I still live there now. I've just moved into a new flat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just um, a couple of roads along from the hospital I was born in. Um, and so I was born and raised in this area of London that is quite green. I used to walk across Victoria Park to get to school, um, <laughs> but also very much, you know, in the middle of a city, the Hackney Central, Mare Street is very urban. Um, and this is kind of didn't become a relevant factor in my life until um, about 2019. So I, you know, did the standard thing of like train tracks of school to uni, uni to job, job to promotion, promotion to another promotion, that then new job and just kind of wasn't really thinking about um, my purpose or making my own decisions. I felt like I was just kind of on these rails that had been set for me as the like oldest child um, of like mm-hmm. a second generation immigrant mother from um, Ireland. So there were these like very much these expectations on me to be like super academic and to kind of succeed in all of these um, metrics of success, you know, financially mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, but I found that I was just getting um, more and more a sense of like lacking a sense of purpose, lacking a sense of self. I was the trustee of a charitable global action plan um, alongside my work, which was in, you know, like corporate marketing, um, very much, you know, like advertising, getting people to buy stuff. And it got to a point where I kind of um, snapped into reality and just realized, you know, you get one life. And is this 
who I want to be and how I want to live it and realizing that you know these opportunities weren't gonna just appear on my doorstep that I had to kind of make drastic changes so um, in 2019 I quit my job um, mm -hmm. I started a course called year here which is a year-long course in um, social like tackling social injustices um, and I had no idea at that time where that would lead I knew I wanted to do something about in the environment but I didn't know what um, and that course started in 2020 obviously <laughs> a very big year for all of us um, globally and as lockdowns happened um, it became very obvious to me doing this social justice course that access to nature was a really tangible social justice issue um, I'd been finding it hard to kind of put this like abstract complex you know environmental climate multi-crisis thing into social justice issues um, where I was living in London obviously for a lot of people in the global south it's a very um, present and tangible issue but I think in our kind of sheltered privileged um, bubble in the UK um, apart from you know flooding and heat waves it wasn't so much of a tangible thing so that is where <laughs> I guess in a way the story starts. <laughs> That's kind of the prologue. <laughs> it's a really long answer. Um, Love it. I'm, I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I realized suddenly that all around me, so yeah, as I said, I was living in Hackney um, and I realized in lockdown, like the Victoria Park, which is the park um, that makes the area so green was, was closed. Um, all around me, people um, would know we were being closed into our houses without gardens and so we had no people had no um private green spaces to go to and the public green space was closed um and you know in other areas of London um I think Hackney's the third most impoverished borough in London and it's one of the most like diverse um ethnically speaking and other areas which were like wealthier and whiter were the parts were staying open because presumably people had their own private gardens to go to and so they weren't all flocking to the parks um, for their mental health and their physical health and th those stayed open they had both private green spaces and public green spaces and um, for a lot of us we had neither um, and that triggered um, this kind of like rage in me I guess I think I it suddenly hit me all of this although I've been walking through the same streets for you know decades um I suddenly saw it in a completely different way and it hit me that I had to do something to protect people's right to access nature which is as vital to our well-being as mental health as um as regular exercise and a healthy diet according to scientist Dr. Ching Lee, who is the kind of one of the world's foremost leading um, experts in, um, well, forest immunology, I think he calls it, but he's a doctor and a kind of research, you know, PhD scientist, so he should know. <laughs> um, and so that's when I started the Nature is a Human Right campaign, um, which is a very long-term, very top-down goal uh, to, you know, petition the United Nations to literally enshrine access to green spaces as a human right um, and not as a privilege, um, which it currently is. And since then I've done a lot more work in grassroots kind of ground up more immediate tangible actions as well, like greening my community um, through guerrilla gardening and community gardening and things like that. Um, and, you know, giving talks, hosting workshops, um, offering micro grants to people um, around the nation and um, just trying to provoke as much conversation and um, meditation on 
this topic as I think it needs. And I, you know, obviously lots of other people had had the similar kind of light bulb moment as I did. It's definitely not uh, just me leading that charge. So thankfully um, there's now a, a much, much wider kind of cry for access to these spaces to be made more um, equitable for everyone because it does fall along the full lines of, you know, income and ethnicity who has access to them. Mm -hmm. That's a really long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's amazing. And I was going to say this. Yeah, I was captivated by everything you were saying. And I feel like a lot of the things I wanted to ask you, um, not that you answered um, already, but you definitely touched on that. So I'm um, super helpful. And um, yeah, I feel like there's so much we could go into, like um, details about so many of the things that you said. Um, and I really love that you have both this kind of um, top down approach with the nature is a human right campaign and really trying to make change happen at the policy um, level, but then also the bottom-up approach with Yerla Gardening, which we'll come back to later. But um, and so you also wrote a book, right, um, called Nature is a Human Right, yeah. um, which is super interesting. I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. I'm reading it at the moment and it's so it's so full of information and I'm just really enjoying it. Um, so yeah, I will link um, I will link it for um, in, in the show notes for our listeners as well if you want to read it because it's um, a very good book. So one thing that you said in that book that really resonated with me was this idea that, and I'm going to quote you, it isn't just that time in nature lifts our spirits, lifeless environments are causing mental anguish. Mm. Um, and I think it's so interesting to flip the narrative and look at contact with nature, not as um, something that helps us and, you know, can, you know, help us address our mental health issues, but rather as something that we absolutely need to be healthy, as you were saying before, the same way we need air to breathe um, or food to eat, which, um, yeah, it, it, it is a human right, I guess. So you said a little bit already, but, but could you expand on that a bit more, maybe? Yeah, thank you so much for um, picking up on that. I'd actually uh, <laughs> forgotten <laughs> that I said that. And it's, like, and it's, but it's completely right. I think we have this kind of generational amnesia that happens where with every generation that's born, you know, for us, for example, what we're born into, we see of as like the baseline. Mm -hmm. um, see that as normal. And then any additions to that, you know, any extra trees added from the very nature deprived gray areas we have we see as like a boost but actually we need to realize that our current baseline is already so far below where where it should be where the actual baseline for our health and happiness and and physical health and you know community is um with regards to having nature around us um so when studies say for instance that like adding greenery increases people's you know mental um you know mental health by this amount or like reduces the need for antidepressant prescriptions or um ADHD medication whatever it might be asthma for instance all of these things it's kind of couches it in the terms of adding this greenery is uh reducing the need for that without thinking that the lack of greenery the present lack of greenery is actually the thing that's causing it we should have we should be surrounded by all this greenery and so although it's getting us back closer to our true baseline our true kind of levels of health and happiness that we should have um with with this kind of thriving life around us they're not smog and fumes and heat waves and concrete um mm -hmm. yeah it's it's we need to kind of be more critical in the way that we're looking at our current the current like ubiquity of gray urban paving um, which is absolutely necessary in lots of ways for, for wheelchair access and for kind of lots of things like that. But um, 
it's not like a nice to have adding these like trees and, and hedges in isn't just like oh a nice little cherry on top and things are fine it's like we're so far away from where we need to be um mm-hmm. that it's getting us you know we need to be looking at the state of things as yeah themselves being the problem mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense and I guess it's probably about kind of restoring a better balance because you're right um that nature is where we come from and it's our home and we we kind of as you're saying through generations and generations of always being more removed from it we kind of forgot that was the case and so there's another passage and, th- and then I'm going to stop quoting you oh I love it um, but there's another passage that I also found really interesting um <laughs> I was literally reading the book and like with my little pen like underlining and I was like this is so interesting <laughs> but yeah you also said that um our bodies are less a solid bounded object and more a space through which eternal matter passes, settles and merges. And so the matter that's around us matters, which I think is kind of um, resonating to what you were saying before. But um, so I wonder if you have thoughts on how we can rethink that relationship with the natural world in kind of a, I guess, broad way and, and realize that we are a nature as cheesy as that sound. And how can we, yeah, as you're saying, deconstruct that system that we live in now that is not how we're supposed to be living I guess yeah well we we are nature I think there's there's mm-hmm. lots of kind of sociological social factors that have led us into this um realm of feeling uh, independent from nature and part of it comes from dualism and like Descartes back to that whole kind of mind-body split thing and religion um part of it's the kind of religious aspect of humans being made in god's image and like being separate from nature in that way part of it now is the kind of capitalist kind of proto-americana hyper like individualism this idea that we're all meant to be um individuals and self you know starters and that kind of thing um and that's more of a recent thing that's that plays into this idea that we're all kind of islands And I say that because I think our lack of connection to nature and our lack of connection to community are really entwined. Um, This idea that we have this boundary wall around us. And I think the the line that you just mentioned from the book about our bodies not being, you know, um, in a way like a solid object, a boundary object is um, just a way to remember that, you know, in the same way as nature interacts with, you know, we, we study in school how trees photosynthesize and evapotranspiration and all of this kind of how those processes work and photosynthesis and like the sunlight going in and like da, 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 but we don't really think about our own bodies in that way. Um, mm-hmm. We think about like if we smoke, <laughs> you know, like the food <laughs> we eat, but, um, you know, there's things that nature produces in the air um mycer uh, bacterium vacai i think this is something that comes from soil that is a huge antidepressant there's um mm-hmm. you know there's all kinds of th- uh oils in in the air that trees produce that kind of we need to take in um and we just kind of don't see ourselves in that way we don't see ourselves as part of this wider cycle of nature um and yeah in the in in terms of that quote, yes. In terms, of we don't really think of ourselves as being a an element in this reciprocal, you know, holistic cycle of give and take throughout the whole of the ecosystem, which obviously now includes 
um, fossil fuels <laughs> and, you know, burnt mm-hmm. plastics and things like that. You know, it's not just the good things that are going in and out, but it's the negative things too. But also in the sense that we see ourselves as removed from nature by an invisible barrier, by a kind of mental barrier, as well as a physical one. Um, we've removed ourselves not only in our houses and with our digital technology, but um, we we do forget that we are nature. And it's funny that, you know, you said like, oh, it sounds cheesy to say like we are nature, but why like it's just mm-hmm. true it's a truism yeah. like you know it's it's funny that it sounds like a kind of instagram you know <laughs> you know hippie like we are nature backpacker kind of you know hem uh-huh. <laughs> hoodie type situation but it's just uh, it, but, we, but that's because our society is so removed from that fact that it's been relegated to that level of um thinking when it's you know it in the same way saying humans are mammals it's just a fact <laughs> and we need to <laughs> need to kind of get our heads around that sooner rather than later otherwise we're just going to continue to destroy the the systems and the life that sustain us um you know they deserve to live in their own right too but our arrogant fallacy that we're separate from nature is only going to lead to our own destruction we can't continue on growing apart from it we need to come back to it in order to continue uh to <laughs> exist <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay wow i i love that that's such um yeah such an interesting point and you write that um it does and it's almost like it does feel at times um which yeah i don't think it's just a feeling i think it's probably the case that the system we live in now kind of is also built on this idea that we need to feel removed from nature in order to contribute to the system in a better way and um you know we're being sold all these things all these things that we probably wouldn't necessarily need but we're being told a story a different story where we're so separate from the natural world and then kind of reclaiming that is right yeah sorry to interrupt so I, my no no go for it <laughs> go <laughs> for it right now. I think specifically what it is is that um we define progress societal progress you know civilization in terms of distance from nature mm-hmm. uh, you know we see advancement as as us becoming less and less at one with nature um and we can see that in the way that kind of indigenous groups have been framed as like uncivilized or even as like savage you know um well you know and that's got nothing to do with their morality it's it's to do with their um oneness with the land and their reciprocal relationship with the land and we see deem that as being uncivilized and so this idea is that you know, society progressing and the the trend of humanity has to be towards, has to be away from nature in order for us to evolve and grow as a civilization. Um, And that is a really um, insidious um, lie, essentially, because we can't progress. Now it's getting to the point where we are holding ourselves back by our our distance from nature because we're people, there's a mental health crisis, there's a loneliness crisis, um, there's a climate crisis, there's an ecological crisis, you know, all of these things are symptoms of our disconnect from the natural world. And so we need to get away from that very like petro patriarchal um, framing, uh, that very kind of imperialist framing of progress, um, mm-hmm. which is dangerous and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow that's such an interesting point I'd never really um pushed I guess the thought so far but you're right that it's um yeah it makes complete sense hearing you um say this so yeah thank you so much for sharing that um and I want to go back to that community element that you mentioned as well because I remember you saying somewhere that 
you found your community through guerrilla gardening. And so you wrote another book as well, actually, on guerrilla gardening that came out um, earlier this year. So um, and that's the kind of bottom up approach that you mentioned before. So could you maybe share more on this for listeners who might not know what guerrilla gardening is and, and maybe also like why, how you decided to start this movement and, and um, yeah, a, a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. So um, back in the early days of Nature as a Human Right, I was really keen to do something tangible and immediate to actually bring more nature to my neighborhood. You know, this is bearing in mind, it was in 2020, it was locked down and like lots of people, um, lots of my neighbors and community members didn't have any way of connecting to nature um, at a time when we were realizing just how essential it was um, for people's mental health and for, you know, um, people's breathing and things, which is obviously so connected to like um, warding off the worst of, of COVID. Um, so I reached out to the council and was like, you know, can we add some greenery here? Can we do it? And they were very like, oh, we've got some targets for greening. We're, you know, doing it at our pace, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I said, okay, well, you know, could I lead something? And they were, you know, their heads turned and not sure about that. And they didn't want to hand over the money or hand over the resources and da, da, da. So I thought, just like, screw that. I'm just going to do it. Um, let's just start planting in all of these bare um gray spaces uh so I didn't really know too much about really gardening at the time actually a friend of mine um told me about like tactical urbanism which is kind of where I don't know if you've ever seen when um you know uh citizens will paint um bicycle lanes onto a road or paint on kind of um mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's just <laughs> people kind of going out and doing it and being like this is going to be a bike lane and they put traffic cones down and it's just people kind of shaping their city <laughs> and so that's yeah. urbanism and he uh, my friend uh, who was on the year here course Kevin was um, I think had been active in that back in Buenos Aires um, anyway he told me about that and then I kind of found my way um, through another friend Mon to guerrilla gardening and I was just like this is incredible it's amazing that there's people doing this um, I didn't know how to garden at all. Um, I grew up in a family where like gardening wasn't really uh, something that my parents ever did. It certainly wasn't like something I did as a child um, or, in, you know, didn't learn about it in school. So I basically learned how to garden in the street. <laughs> but mm-hmm. All of the people in my community who I'd reached out to to kind of form this group. Um, and each week we'd pick a different spot. You know, some would be like, oh, can we do it like in, on the grass outside my estate? Some would say, can we do it along these trees along this street or whatever it might be? And we would go and, you know, plant at that time of year. I think it was, well, it's about this time of year, actually. It's about October by that point. And we were planting lots of um, bulbs and daffodils and sowing wildflowers and, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of how it got started. Um, and it, yeah, you know, as I say, I, I've lived in Hackney um, my whole <laughs> life, apart from when I went to uni, mm-hmm. um, essentially. And um, I didn't really feel like I fully belonged there ever until I started to do this work, um, because I was really then contributing to the place and mm-hmm. connecting to the people of the, of the space beyond just the people who were kind of in my immediate vicinity, my kind of social bubble. You know, I was meeting people of all generations, all backgrounds, all kind of walks of life. And we were all kind of coming together under this shared interest. And it felt like a true community and truly meeting your neighbors. And even now, um, you know, I've just moved, I've been gorilla gardening this spot up near me for, for a while. Um, and 
uh, I've met my I met my literal next door neighbor because I was gorilla gardening. I hadn't met her before, and she stopped and chatted to me while I was planting in the bed. She was like, "Oh, where do you live?" And I was like, oh, "I just moved in um, to number so and so." And she was like, "Oh, I live next door." <laughs> and so, um, you know, she's this like Caribbean grandma, <laughs> and we, you know, now I know her, and I just wouldn't have known her otherwise. Um, and the same with loads of people. So. It's a really great way to truly cultivate this connection to nature and connection to community that we've lost. Um, and I think connection to nature, particularly in that you're giving back, I think a lot of people kind of, or I certainly used to try and force this kind of connection to nature, this, you know, uh, elusive, ephemeral thing by going into green spaces and sort of really staring at a tree <laughs> and trying to kind of pull something <laughs> out of it. And it just... I wasn't getting this sense of peace um, that I had been told would come. And I think I finally gained that sense through planting because you are really connecting to nature. You know, you're not just asking of things from it. You're, you're forging a relationship. And when you're doing that with other humans in your community, as well as kind of, you know, the plant life and the biodiverse wildlife and stuff in, in in the area that you get when you plant as well that just reinforces the magic I think um and so yeah for me gorilla gardening is a, a, a pivotal it's the movement that the world needs now and I'd say it's something anyone can do because of the fact you're doing it off your own back off your own initiative and not waiting for you know the council or whoever to to say so um, anyone can do it and you can do it for free. You can do it um, anywhere. Um, obviously, I mean, I don't know if you tried to do it in like certain countries around the world, how that would go down, but certainly in, like across Europe and um, North America and so on, you'd be absolutely fine doing it. Um, mm -hmm. As long as, well, I mean, uh, so yeah, I go into this in my book. There's no specific <laughs> laws against guerrilla gardening in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I don't think there are I don't know of any anywhere because it's not enough of a thing for them to have legislated against it mm -hmm. um, but you know people could come after you for claims of like vandalism or like public nuisance or something else that it, there, there is a law about and say and claim that it was one of those things um, but obviously taking a really neglected derelict sad and lifeless spot that the council have kind of let fall into dereliction and and you know replanting it or transforming it into something beautiful for community in a in a safe and inclusive way that's not vandalism <laughs> you know what I mean mm -hmm. and then destroying yeah. that would be vandalism so for me it also doesn't yeah I think I've never gotten in any trouble for gorilla gardening and I don't know anyone um I, like I've not ever worked with anyone who has um I even know a group of people who broke into a vacant lot they literally cut uh, a lock off this huge huge brownfield site and, and broke into it and built a garden there and therefore like that none of them <laughs> like they had to move eventually because the council needed it for like a train station entrance but now the council is supporting them so mm -hmm. I think there is a shifting mindset now where people are becoming more aware of the need for this and the benefits of doing it because the councils, you know, in my interactions of trying to work with them, and I used to work in a council, I know how stretched they are, I know where they've got to be really uh, risk averse, I know where they've got to be slow and considered and, and can't just kind of be really agile and that they've got restrained resources and time. Um, and so for them to have this 
sort of, you know, army of community gardeners to do this stuff for them can only be a good thing in terms of mm-hmm. hitting, like meeting their targets of biodiversity and mental health and all of these things. Um, it just seems like a total no-brainer, but there's still this mindset that people, a lack of trust and a lack of faith in, in community, in people who are, you know, everyday people and kind of this idea that people don't really know what they're doing. And maybe they don't, like I didn't, but we're never going to learn until we have a chance to try. That's how you learn to do something. So you've got to kind of let people have a go. And as long as you're not planting anything invasive, as long as you're not planting anything like poisonous to the touch, you know, don't be planting nightshade. Um, and you know don't plant oh, i don't know himalayan balsam or whatever something you like <laughs> japanese knotweed you know like why just, just don't plant that stuff and you know what harm can you do really <laughs> um, there's a whole section of my book about how to like be really con- the whole book really is about how to do it really considerately and like not blocking mm-hmm. on paths so you know wheelchairs push chairs and so on mobility scooters can get past and making sure everything's really securely made so nothing's going to fall apart just basic common sense essentially but um yeah there's plenty of flower beds around that could do with a bit of community TLC and so my I'm actually off after this call um going to go plant bulbs around with the the, the kind of the, the dream green group which is my the group I started in lockdown is um still going it's evolved lots and there's um I, uh, like seven of us getting together later to go plant bulbs around Clapton <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome I love that you're you're <laughs> um how do you say like talking walking the talk um <laughs> yeah 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 I mean I try to the, yeah. the irony mm, about talking about all this nature nature connection stuff is that you know mm. for years I'm just you sat behind a desk the laptop kind of writing <laughs> writing uh-huh. about um or like you know whatever creating petitions but um it does rather take you away from yourself sometimes <laughs> Yeah, no, but I love that. And I think it also, um, it really resonated with me what you said before about how this idea of like going in, like looking at a tree and like trying to feel something. And I feel like there's quite a, you know, a strong narrative, um, which is great, obviously, about how we need that contact with nature and everything. But I guess for a lot of people, there's a bit of a question mark around that. It's like, what do you do once you get to the park? And like, how are you? Because you're right, you're, a lot of us don't really know how to interact with nature. And I love, so I love how guerrilla gardening um, gives you kind of a purpose around that, but also um, this idea that you're giving back to nature and not just like going for your own benefit, but also like you're doing something for um, mm-hmm. your local biodiversity as well, which I think is um, yeah such an interesting approach. Um, and so I was, yeah, one of my questions was going to be, what's your advice for people who want to start guerrilla gardening? But I think oh, you've I've said quite a lot. Okay, do you yeah, want to say? Yeah, so I'll, I would say... I'll just... <laughs> go for it, go for it. Um... My advice for anyone who wants to start guerrilla gardening is just to, so it's, you know, it's autumn now, you can go and grab some native wildflower seeds and just throw them on the ground, you know, scratch the soil up a bit and try and cover them a bit. Mm -hmm. And then it will take you seconds to do. Um, You can walk away from it and like, then you're done. You're a guerrilla gardener. And I think that's the main thing is just getting people over that first hurdle. So I think when Mm -hmm. people think about guerrilla gardening, it seems like this huge, like, oh god I wouldn't know where to start and where do I how would I do it and you know da, da, da. And it's just like just go leave your front door walk for one minute in mm-hmm. any direction you know you can do this a few times keep your eye to the ground if you see a bare patch of soil maybe around a street tree bed um mm-hmm. or maybe it's like a road verge that's you know fair game it's near where you live it's somewhere you can keep an eye on if it's looking neglected you know and and bare perfect 
chuck some sweet seeds there then you're done um and and where so just just to get like super specific like where where would you find the seeds and I know you say more about this in your book so I'll obviously link the book as well and I really encourage listeners to read it to learn everything about your gardening but to have like quick fire like where where does one find seeds so I mean it depends um where you live but so just search for native wildflower seeds and the best thing you can Mm do is to um get seeds from uh, a seed saving network or any other kind of um seed saving cooperative because they are protecting um seed diversity and kind of protecting seeds that are heirloom and organic and um heritage seeds the the difference there being that a lot of seeds that you buy in like the newsagent or like a, a homeware store or whatever you know and you have them in their big colorful packets up on like a spinning rack um mm-hmm. those what's called f1 um which means that they're a hybrid so they get two kind of parent plants and, and fuse them together to make that um to make those seeds um that produce those seeds um because it'll have like specific characteristics it might be about the size of it the color the productivity of it whatever um and that's great for that for those seeds that you plant but the thing is because of the way it's been produced once you grow that tomato plant or that sunflower or whatever it might be the seeds you save from that plant can't be then reliably used again um Mm -hmm. you're dependent then on going back to the shop and buying new seeds every year and this is really um putting the majority of our global seed stock, especially in food, in the hands of like a, a few, like a handful of multinational corporations. Um, mm-hmm. Not to get all like conspiracy theorists, but like it, this is this is a fact, you know, um, you can look into this. It's something like 90% of the world's um, food seed stock is, is in, in the hands of, of, I think, less, like fewer than five organizations, especially two, that's Monsanto and Sagenta. Um, mm-hmm. And along with, along with that comes a dependency on the chemicals they produce. So um chemical pesticides chemical fertilizers to grow them um so seed sovereignty is this movement for seed saving essentially which says you know we should be saving seeds from plants um and using those and using seeds that have been kind of open pollinated naturally pollinated rather than produced by this hybridization um, hybridization process so yeah, just if you could just look out for like, so there's a few, I mean, in, in the UK, there's vital seeds. They're really good, just off the top of my head. Um, but there's loads. Um, you can you can normally kind of tell from the organization what kind of seeds they're producing. But um, if you search for like seed cooperatives or just search for um, organic kind of heirloom seeds, then you'll find them. Um, but in general, yes, native wildflowers are the best. And the reason for that is, um just search so you know if you're listening to this in the uk search for you know uk native wildflower seeds specifically you could search for you know cornwall or um yorkshire or anything like that because there'll be slightly endemic plants there as well but um mm-hmm. the native what is native to your region is essentially what's kind of n- has been growing there for jet centuries and and, and kind of naturally adopted there and, and the reason that there is the most beneficial ones to use is because the ecosystem has the very complex ecosystem of the entire you know area has built has been built around the building blocks of all of those plants and animals and so on um all together and so if you use native plants they're more you know the local wildlife is better adapted to eating them to using them as shelter and so on so it's just it's just supporting the rest of the kind of um the the biome and the chain of you know the food chain in that area and so it's a lot, a lot better for protecting native um wildlife and biodiversity and other things like that 
Um, there are various plants you can use that are non-native that are also beneficial, um, but just check that they're not invasive. Um, and invas invasive species, there's no there's no species that is in itself just like inherently invasive. Things become invasive when you move them because mm -hmm. so Japanese knotweed, for instance, which is super invasive here, isn't invasive in Japan because it, there's a natural predator there. There's like a kind of bug that will eat it. Um, and so it keeps it in check. But because we don't have that here, when it moved here as a um, as a uh, ornamental plant by some by the Victorians, um, it, they quickly realized it would just go rampant because there was nothing to keep it in check. And that's the same for various other plants as well. As soon as you kind of move them out of their natural area because of you're taking one chain out of this like very complex chain mail. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. One, you're taking one link out and moving it somewhere else. Um, it doesn't fit and it, and it can kind of cause havoc but um yeah it's it's kind of an ongoing debate within rewilding and within um ecosystem restoration and regeneration the the role of native and non-native plants um especially given the changing climates you know it's kind of really what is what's native and what's naturalized the the lines are really really blurring um there's also an interesting debate around it because of people have appropriated that language in like eco-fascist ways just to, to be anti-immigration and anti-migration of humans um but that's just completely out of pocket like humans <laughs> you can't apply that to people people from another nation of this kind of you know pretend borders that we've that we've put up it's it doesn't work for that so just be kind of aware of of um accidentally kind of stepping into any eco-fascist things there's no there's no reason on earth to stop people from um, migrating and I don't believe there should be borders but like with plants there's obviously like a biological <laughs> way that it fits together so it's a very separate thing but I think it's just worth mentioning because um, people have mis kind of appropriated that language for um, nefarious reasons <laughs> mm -hmm, sorry mm -hmm. this is such a long answer you're going to have such in-depth answers your questions like where do you get seeds from I'm talking about ecobashism <laughs> No, but I, I love it. And I think that, yeah, that that is such an important uh, precision. So yeah, thank thank you for saying that. And also, um, yeah, it is super helpful. So um, I think listeners will definitely enjoy all the advice. Um, but yeah, I feel like I cut you off on the seat thing. So were you about to say something else or should I just move to the next No, one? no, no, you didn't at all. Okay. Um, I, uh... <laughs> I plenty there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but yeah, definitely tons of super, super helpful information. So thank you for sharing all of that. And again, um, listeners, hi I highly, highly recommend getting the book because it's full of even more advice and a very good, um, yeah, a very good place to start if you want to start guerrilla gardening around you. Um, and so the last question I wanted to ask you actually um, is kind of going back to this idea of uh, mental health and well-being so how how do you look after yourself and recharge your batteries is there anything specific um, you do or want to share around that in all honesty I'm probably the worst person to give advice on <laughs> okay I burn out constantly. I'm really like I've um I throw myself at things full throttle until my body forces me to stop, um, mm -hmm. and that is not doing it. I'm I'm really consciously trying to cultivate better balance in my life, um, mm -hmm. and that's something I'm still trying to figure out. And I think part of that is trying to set more routine and schedule in time to do nothing and to wind down um, rather than feeling I have to be productive all the time. Uh, I because I've been freelance you know doing this work for the last four years now um it's I've just been in kind of doing multiple things at once all the time so you know I've been like 
doing nature's human rights, running dream green my gorilla gardening uh group and social enterprise writing two books <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. doing, paying work on the side like hosting talks like doing workshops all of this stuff um so I need to I'm doing this autumn a conscious kind of you know I'm becoming like a tree and I'm gonna like try and shed my leaves mm-hmm. and stop trying to produce so much and instead kind of go down and live in my roots um uh-huh. under, it, under the soil you know like do less publicly and 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 kind of work out beneath the surface how to come back in full force in spring uh-huh. Uh, oh, I love that. That's such a beautiful metaphor. I, I I hear a lot of people around me, um, obviously in the kind of environmental space, trying to mimic nature a bit more and this idea that we're, you know, meant to slow down in autumn and meant to um, almost like hibernate. A, a friend of mine um, also said, like, we're not meant to bloom all year round, you know. It's, so I, I love that narrative. But I think the way you're saying it about um the metaphor of the tree um I think is so powerful and interesting and I've never heard that so um yeah that's beautiful thank you for sharing I'm gonna I'm that's gonna stay with me I think (laughs) amazing well I think that that was it for me um thank you so much Alain that was such an interesting conversation I think so so much advice so valuable for listeners so yeah thank you so so much for your time thank you so much for having me Thank you, listeners. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, as always, please don't hesitate to share it around you with someone who you think might like it as well. You can also find me on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast. If you have any feedback or thoughts, it's always lovely to hear from you. Make sure you also follow Ellen and check out her books. I'll include everything in the show notes. And um, see you very soon. Thank you so much for caring and sending you lots of love.